hope you're having a really good weekend. Welcome to this week's 10 minute recap. Uh, so our assigned reading through Bible discovery this week was Job 29 to Psalm 18. So we're really cruising right into musical poetry today. And honestly, this gives us a bit of a uh, of relief, I think anyway, from what can sometimes become depressing poetry of Job. Okay, but let's work our way through it. So Job chapter 29, it records the beginning of Job's final defense. Uh, so he expounds upon how much he longs for his life before all of this happened, which is very understandable. And then he launches a defense of himself, detailing all the things he used to do because they were godly things. So things like rescuing the disadvantaged in society, uh, particularly in his society, because it was a patriarchal society. So the vulnerable people in that society were the poor, orphans, widows, and strangers, meaning foreigners in that context. So then in Job 30 and 31, Job's defense continues. He speaks of how now these disadvantaged whom he used to help could mock him because he's the most disadvantaged. And he bemoans that God isn't answering him even though he made every effort to be morally upstanding in his life. He goes into details on what his morality looked like as well. So not things like not lying, not lusting, helping the poor, not trusting in his wealth, all of those kinds of things. And he concludes his defense. And again, he asks God to indict him in writing. So basically, tell me clearly so I can understand. In Job 32, we have Elihu begin to speak. Now, Elihu is angry that Job is justifying himself rather than trying to justify God. And Elihu is angry with the other three friends of Job because they hadn't found a way to properly answer or condemn Job. There wasn't this, ah, we gotcha kind of moment. In Job 33, Elihu continues and he tells Job that he now needs to answer Elihu. So he, he lays this foundational understanding saying that God wants to save people from disaster, that he gives people dreams to warn them from it, but he lets them go through pain ultimately so they will repent. So Elihu gives Job a chance to answer, but encourages him to choose to be quiet and listen and learn. Now Job doesn't answer. So in the next chapter, Job 34, Elihu continues. So first he addresses the three friends and essentially summarizes what has gone on in the conversation that Job believes that he's innocent, but how obviously he's not innocent because if he were, he'd be more humble about it, which just really comes across as really arrogant of Elihu. But he contends that God doesn't do justice. He is justice. Therefore, to accuse God of injustice is evil. God does not owe anyone an explanation. We should just trust his justice that these circumstances of Job's loss are themselves a judgment on Job's wickedness, which of course Job is adding to this wickedness through his denials. In Job 35, Elihu addresses Job. Apparently, he finds Job really arrogant because he tells Job that neither sin nor righteousness help or hurt God at all. Basically, God doesn't need you, Job, as if Job thought so in the first place. Elihu tells Job that the reason God is not speaking to him is because Job's prayers are empty and arrogant. 
Now, in Job 36 to 37, Elihu continues giving a defense of God. He says that God is neither an oppressor or an aggressor, but he causes suffering, again, to bring about that repentance. And he mixes into this conversation discussion on God's greatness, which really it would be a good thing to do if Elihu himself weren't arrogantly claiming to be speaking on God's behalf. Now, that brings us to the big guns. In Job 38 to 39, we have God beginning his reply to Job. So finally, God's interrupting this giant reservoir of human speech. But maybe a bit surprisingly, though, God doesn't deal with the question of why Job has lost so much and is suffering. Instead, he seems to focus more on the nature of the human to God relationship. He begins by pretty extensively challenging Job's knowledge. God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Guys, this hits me so hard. How often do we claim to know God's plans or, or to know God through our theology, our understanding? We have to be careful to remember that we're talking about a living God. We're not just talking about idea. God is a living being. Anyway, back to Job. So God is now indicting Job. He's speaking to Job in the same way that Job called out to him. So like in a court of law. So Job's indictment of God was that God had caused the innocent to suffer while allowing the wicked to prosper. And God indicts Job back. Job had done this while having no knowledge of God's plan for the world. So God then tells Job to prepare to answer some questions. He leads Job through a series of questions that really put him in his place as a human. And these questions are all about creation. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Have you ever given orders to the morning? And these clearly show that God has a much broader function than humans could ever hope to have. If <laughs> we're just not the same kind of creature. Job 40 to 41 then contain the rest of God's speeches to Job. The first speech ends with this. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So Job does answer and he says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. That's 40 verse 4 to 5. So Job's really gotten the point here. Uh, then God speaks again. He says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? So in light of God's position in the universe as sovereign, as Lord, as king, in, and in light of his character, is Job willing to condemn God? And I think the implication here is that God has an overarching plan. So is Job willing to trust the plan? So God challenges Job and in different words, he essentially says, now, would you wield my power, Job, to humble the wicked and bring them down to the grave? God then describes animals that mankind cannot tame. So the behemoth and the Leviathan. And he says, if you can't even stand against these animals, then how can you stand against me? In Job 42, Job gives another response to God. He says, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans with, without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job is repenting for his lack of understanding who God 
is. Job didn't have the right perspective. God is the sovereign of the earth, of the universe. He has a plan. So God then has the three friends of Job repent and offer sacrifices, which Job offers to God on their behalf. Some some humble pie there for them. Now, God also restores Job's health and fortune. He even has more children who are named at the end of Job here. Okay, so that's the end of Job. Let's jump right into Psalms. Psalm chapter one. So Psalm one introduces a theme that pops up again and again in the book, and that is a contrasting the way of the righteous up against the way of the wicked. So in Psalm 1, the righteous, they delight in God's law and they daily meditate on God's law, but the wicked don't do that and they are basically like useless chaff. Psalm 2 introduces another theme, which is God and God's king. So wicked nations rise up against God and his anointed king, but the righteous find success through serving God and honoring his anointed king. So we see here this thematic connection between Psalm 1 and 2. They both compare the righteous to the wicked, but chapter 1 does that on a personal, like an individual level, and Psalm 2 does it on a national level. Now, Psalm 3 opens with a note that it was composed by King David when he had to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom's coup against him. Now, its main theme is God as a shield, so trusting in him at all times like a warrior would his shield. Psalm 4 is a prayer in a distressing time. So this one specifically seems to be uh, during a drought and famine, and it ends with a declaration of trust in God. Psalm 5 is a prayer for help. David asks God to lead him into righteousness, and he asks him to denounce the wicked people who are coming against David. Psalm 6 is a more internal look into David's heart. So he uses a lot of emotive language. He's feeling faint, exhausted, anguish, and he asks God to have mercy on him, to save him. And then he offers a statement of faith at the end. He knows that God has heard him, and he trusts that God will save him. Now, Psalm 7 is about David trusting God to be his shield, and David praises God because of God's righteousness. Now, Psalm 8 is a pure praise of God. It's been turned into a popular hymn today. So, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9 is a song of thanksgiving for an answered prayer. So, God had delivered David from enemies. And then Psalm 10 is a song of lament. Basically, why, God, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He calls on God to end the deeds of the wicked. Uh, but then David always ends with declaring how he will trust in God to hear and defend the afflicted and the oppressed. Psalm 11 has David saying that God is his refuge. Even though he's found himself in a really bad time, God is still good. God is still in control. And David will rest in God's character. He's going to trust that. Psalm 12 was written as a cry for help because there had been some sort of human betrayal. But again, it ends on a familiar high point, right? This declaration uh, of trust and faith in God. Now, Psalm 13 presents a really frustrated David. God has not answered his prayers yet, and David's struggling with that. He says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? It's really interesting how we see David practicing faith here, practicing that trust in God. The psalm ends with this, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So it's that, that practicing what we know about God.
Now, Psalm 14 talks about the debased state of humanity, and it ends with a prayer for God to restore his people. Psalm 15 then takes a bit of the opposite view. It focuses on righteous people rather than on the wicked. Psalm 16 is a song of dedication and trust in God. It contains a promise to not serve false gods, but rather to praise the true God. In Psalm 17, David calls out to God for vindication. People are trying to take David down, so he's asking for God to save him. And then finally for today, in Psalm 18, we have a song of praise that David wrote after he became king. So he describes God in many ways here, as his strength, as his rock, his fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, all of these protective great things and worthy of praise. Um, So David, who had, uh, like, let's remember, he had become a famous warrior in Israel. He describes God as a divine warrior. So the ultimate warrior and um, the being through whom everyone should get their strength. All right, guys, that's it. That that wraps it up. It's it's a little bit weird trying to recap the Psalms because they're essentially songs, songs, they're poetry, they're music. Uh, but I'm doing my best. I hope that you are still able to read some of the songs rather than just recap them. For now, pop any questions or comments down below. And I hope that you have a great week of reading and studying through the Psalms. See you later. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.